Hello and welcome to episode 71 of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. Highlights on today's episode include the spoiler and spoiler-free reviews of Thor Love and Thunder. We're going to be talking about all of the Easter eggs, all of the comic references, anything questions that you may have, hopefully I will have explained for you there, as well as the season finale of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and the penultimate episode of Ms. Marvel from Disney+. Plus. The finale is premiering this week. Aside from those highlights, we have our regular news for the week, as well as comic book picks and comic book polls. Um, and there's actually an amazing, there are some really amazing comic book covers coming out this week. So in our comic book poll list for this week, things coming out the 12th and 13th of July, um, I'm going to be highlighting some really honestly stellar cover artists who have done a fantastic job um, with various variant covers for comic books being released this week. So we'll talk about that when we get to the comic book polls. Before we get started, though, if you would like to find me anywhere online, the easiest place is the Yancey Street Discord. There is a fresh invite link at the bottom of each episode's description, um, just place for general chat and things like that. You don't have to be constantly talking about comics. That's It's just a nice place for like-minded folks. Um, otherwise, you can find me on Instagram at Anna with the Comics and on Twitter at Savage she Geek. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, which I have been fixing up uh, and I'm going to be continuing to add some more content into to make it more relevant in addition to the podcast, specifically with things like beginner's guides to both comics and manga. I'm going to be adding in some stuff that's going to be uh, differences between comic and manga terminology wise, um, and that's going to extend a little bit into anime as well. Um, hopefully it covers any information that you might want to, uh, we might need to take your first steps into the world of comics or manga or anything like that, including recommendations on uh, graphic novels, single issues, comic series, manga series, things like that. Um, if you have any other questions and stuff, I also would love to help you learn more about these uh, worlds. So if you have anything that is not addressed on my site for those intros to comics and manga, please, please ask. And I would love to add a section to explain whatever it is that I have um, missed out on the site. I also have um, a, a fair amount of women in comics content um, that I've trying to be expanding on, especially more recently, including uh, podcast specials on Clea, Madeline Pryor, Magic, Patsy Walker is the most recent one. She is Hellcat, and she is one of the oldest female characters at Marvel Comics, period, which is pretty cool. So um, definitely check out those podcast specials about those ladies. Um, I also have my podcast notes if you would rather kind of skim through the notes of my each week's podcast instead of listening to it. I make those available as well. Also, of course, for anyone who is hearing impaired who would like to keep up with the podcast as well. You can find the podcast pretty much, actually, I, I think it's everywhere that podcasts stream nowadays. Um, and that includes YouTube, where I post all the episodes in a single playlist in case that is easier for anybody to listen to him that way. I also post action figure review videos. It's been a lot of imports in the more recent videos because I have kind of been jaded to death by Hasbro's Marvel Legends line, although I do have a very big backlog of Legends videos, including last year's Haslob Sentinel, and we should be getting Galactus in the end of this month. Isn't that right? So we'll be doing a video on that Galactus as well. If you would like to support the podcast, I do have... The podcast is, um, it is completely ad-free. My website is ad-free. The podcast is ad-free. Nothing, I don't get paid for any of that. I don't, 
charge for any of that. So if you'd like to support the podcast, since I do work a day job in addition to putting all of this together, I do have a podcast Patreon. It is there under Sensational She Geek. There's also links to Ko-fi, Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, anything like that on the um, donations and link tree in the bottom of each episode's description. Um, obviously all voluntary, but again, it is a ad-free podcast. So to keep it running, it must be, um, supported by listeners like you. <laughs> that was my best NPR PBS voice. Thank you. So let's go ahead and kick off the episode. We're going to start with news. Um, I think this is actually all news, not really any rumors. Yeah, there's no rumors on here, so that's fun. Actual, legitimate news this time. So um, there's no real order I put anything in here. It's just the order that the news came in. (laughs) So starting off with my possibly the most exciting thing this week that came out, the Echo Show updates. We have more or less confirmed that Matt Murdock's Daredevil and Wilson Fisk's Kingpin are both going to be um, in the Echo show that's going to be premiering next year on Disney+. Plus. I believe it's next year at least. Um, And that is obviously spinning out of the Hawkeye show. Um, Echo being her own character, yes, she is going to be the main character of this. I know Daredevil, Wilson Fisk is very exciting, but it is still an Echo show. Let's not forget that this is going to be about her. Now, it gets a little bit hard to remember that when you add in the fact that there are also, I guess this is a bit of rumor, rumors that the plot, the Daredevil side of the plot, is going to be basically Daredevil looking for Jessica Jones through the course of the Echo show. Additionally, he will apparently have his black and yellow suit, which is the first appearance Daredevil suit um, that was designed way back in the day when he first came out. It was kind of an, well, not kind of, it was a complete homage to wrestling outfit designs, which was a, not wrestling, boxing which was a reference again to his, to Matt Murdock's father, the whole backstory thing. Okay. Uh, but in any case, that yellow and black suit is apparently what he is going to be wearing through the beginning of the Echo show on his portion of whatever he's going to be involved in as he looks for Jessica Jones. And by the end of the season, he will be back in his standard red suit. So that's kind of cool. I know the yellow and black suit was something that people really, really wanted to see in the Daredevil show. Maybe I, I can see it being extremely appropriate that this kind of side project for the character will end up being where we see that because it is a bit of, I wouldn't say a deep cut outfit, but it's a bit of a, um, a fan favorite, I guess that you would say that isn't exactly the best looking that his outfits have ever looked, but it is a fan favorite. Also, of course, based on how we saw things go down with him and Maya in the, um, in the Hawkeye show, Wilson Fisk will be having an eye patch. It's going to be directly pulling from the, Um, from the comics where, again, Maya shoots him in the face and he loses sight out of one eye. That's, that's pulling directly from the comics. So they're basically doing that whole plot line, 
um, in her show. They're going to be expanding on that. And we're adding in Matt Murdock and hopefully Jessica Jones as characters who are going to be running around at that time as well. I know Kristen Ritter, who played Jessica Jones in the Netflix shows, has been doing a fair amount of teasing. Um, same as, uh, what's her name, who plays Lady Sif. It's, they, they, I think, are um, trying to get the audiences to be excited for them to come back so that they can secure themselves a spot to come back, which I totally respect. I, uh, of course, you if you play these amazing characters, uh, why would you not want to come back and have some fun with those roles, right? So hopefully we'll be seeing Kristen Ritter's Jessica Jones by the end of the Echo Show. Uh, Matt Murdock will apparently be running throughout it as Daredevil in at least one new look that we haven't seen him in live action yet, that yellow and black suit. Fisk is going to have an eye patch, and uh, Maya herself, you know, maybe they're going to do a little bit of the um, the Echo Daredevil uh, the Echo Daredevil romance, because that's a thing from the comics. I actually, turning to look at it on the wall, I actually have a, I believe, uh, I can't tell what issue is, but it's a Marvel Knights Daredevil, um, and it's one of her first appearances of Echo, um, and it's her as Echo, not as Maya, dancing with Daredevil, um, and I believe she's got a gun in her hand. It, the whole The whole plot line was basically, um, she believed that Daredevil was involved in her father's murder, um, and so Maya, while Echo is searching to kill Daredevil, Maya ends up dating Matt. <laughs> um, and it's this whole complicated thing because, of course, she is mute and he is blind. So they kind of have a bit of a um, companionship in that sense, I suppose. But um, that's that's when we first see her in the comics, that's how it's going down. So I'm kind of thinking that that's how they're going to do it in her show. Um they're not just going to have a whole second plot line with Daredevil doing his own thing that's completely unrelated to Echo and what she's doing. That would be stupid. Um, so I, I think that the, the way they're going to tie him in, well, it might be a fun little romance. Whether or not she's going to want to kill Daredevil, we'll have to wait and see. Because we already know that Fisk has been identified as the reason her father was killed. Um, and that's not really involving Daredevil, period. So we'll have to see if they put in any kind of the... Uh, the hate plotline between the two of them, but the love plotline I can definitely see them pulling off. If you are a fan of the DC character Punchline, congratulations, she is getting a new series coming in October. It's apparently going to stretch over October and November. I'm not sure how many issues it will be, um, but it's going to be called Punchline the Gotham Game. Punchline premiered just a couple of years ago in the comics um, with being, it's complicated, honestly. They, I, I did not like how they, her character itself is fine, but the way that they kind of brought her in and made her a Joker fangirl as a teenager was very odd. So ignoring all of that now, <laughs> hopefully we'll get some more mature punchline stories, um, and hopefully she can stand on her own two feet as a character without the Joker. Um, the little, uh, I have a character bio for her if you know absolutely nothing about her. Real name Alexis K. This student of Snyder College became obsessed with the Joker after he hijacked a TV studio and forced Alexis at gunpoint to deliver a message to Gotham. Starting a true crime podcast dedicated to the Joker, she began developing her own version of the Joker toxin, experimenting on the homeless before targeting students and professors at her university before getting before getting the Joker to hire her ahead of the Joker war, during which she became increasingly ruthless, ruthless to please the Joker, slit the throat of Harley Quinn. It's fine, she's fine. 
fine. Defeated Catwoman, sort of. And stole Bruce Wayne's fortune for the Joker. She later kidnapped Lucius Fox, infected the Batman, and tried to torch Poison Ivy's Eden. After being defeated by Batman and incarcerated ahead of a trial, she used social media and an influencer fan base to turn public opinion in her favor, while nobbling witnesses and seeing- nobbling? Witnesses and seeing her acquitted for any and all charges. I can see them turning this into a character that is really cool. I just don't like how they introduced her in the start. So um, this could be something quite interesting. I don't know. I'm not sure who's writing it or drawing it. Um, but hopefully this will be Alexis K's punchline getting a proper origin and villain story. Also coming in 2023, a new Ruby Justice League animated movie. This was announced at RTX Austin. When I'm saying Ruby, I am not saying R-U-B-Y. I am saying capital R-W-B-Y as in the hero team. Um, I don't really know how else to say that. You have Ruby, Weiss, Blake, and Yang. Those are the names of the heroes who attend Beacon Academy, apparently. Um, the reason that this is relevant is because they were doing a good amount of Ruby Justice League crossover comics, which I'll get into in a second, that actually went pretty well. Um, so it looks like Rooster Teeth has gone ahead and funded this the production of this feature-length movie that's going to be Ruby and the Justice League teaming up. It's going to be a collaboration with Warner Brothers Animation and Warner Brothers Home Entertainment, and again is slated for a 2020, 2023 release. This comes after the surprise hit of the Ruby Justice League crossover comic that brought everyone's favorite quadfecta of Huntresses together with the Justice League for the first time. With writing from Marguerite Bennett and art courtesy of Anek, Stephanie Pepper, and Emanuela Lupacino, this miniseries saw alternate, ver alternate universe versions of popular DC characters like Clark Kent, Bruce Wayne, and Diana Prince living on Remnant, which is the uh, Ruby stuff, I guess and forming the Justice League, a team of powerful teenage huntsmen and huntresses who team up, who meet up with Team Ruby after a string of mysterious disappearances around Remnant. I clearly do not have much knowledge about Ruby, um, but it is available on Rooster Teeth's website. If you would like to watch it, there's like seven seasons or something like that. I think it started in 2013. Um, but I plan on watching this in preparation for this Ruby Justice League movie so that I at least know something of what's going on. Ruby is based off of an anime, uh, or sorry, Ruby is an anime that is based off of a manga. Um, its original release was back of the show, was back in 2013. It's been a viral hit. Here we go. It says eight volumes of the show. So we have eight seasons currently available, as well as spin-off manga and book adaptation games and more. There is a ninth series on its way for 2023 which again had a teaser at the same RTX Austin show. The Ruby Justice League crossover film will see the crew behind the web series jump over for the production, meaning all the people on Rooster Teeth are going to be following the, into the movie as well. It will be directed by Carrie Shawcross, who has joined Miles Luna, Kiersey Burkhart, and Eddie Rivas in writing. And again, Rooster Teeth Animation is going to produce the series. You can stream Ruby on Crunchyroll, which is just uh, has subs, but if you would like the dub version, that you can find on the the Rooster Teeth website. And that's where I'll be watching it. Um, some brief things in the end here. We have leaks from Loki season two, which is apparently in production at some some 
part of production at this point. Uh, specifically, we have two posters that will be appearing supposedly in the Loki show. One of them is for Zaniac, and one is for Phone Ranger. Uh, Phone Ranger is a hero who has phone-type powers. It's It was not a good era of... It was... It was back in that day where they were literally throwing spaghetti at the walls to see what readers liked. <laughs> um, but Zaniac, kind of similar, although I think he is more of a villainous character, if I am correct. Um, so those are two very, very deep cut Marvel characters from back in the day that apparently are going to have movie posters about them in the Loki season two show. What does that mean? Absolutely no freaking idea. <laughs> This is the first, as far as I know, leak of any kind that we've had from Loki Season 2, um, so maybe we'll have more that will possibly shed light on what are they doing over there? I think this may have been over a week ago at this point, but I forgot to talk about it last week. We had leaks of official um, concept art for Wakanda Forever, specifically regarding the Atlanteans. We know now officially that Namor is going to be in the in the movie, and so all the Atlanteans that come along with him will also be in the movie as well. Um, interestingly, it looks like they're doing the full uh, blue skin Atlanteans. We know Namor, obviously, traditionally does not have the blue skin, but the majority of Atlanteans, um, for whatever reason, I'm sure there's an explanation in the comics that I haven't looked up yet, they have blue skin, and Namor is one of those characters, and so is Atuma, who is like this weird shark-headed guy who's been through a lot of different phases in the comics, but Namor and Atuma have both had um, concept art either leaked or released, whichever it is, and they will be blue-skinned um, Atlanteans, which now is making me think about blue-skinned Kree, and I'm wondering if they're going to make a connection there because we just saw that blue-skinned arm in Ms. Marvel that has yet to be explained. Maybe they won't even bother explaining that. I'm getting ahead of myself. In any case, um, Namora, Atuma, and Namor in their three concept art images all have full Aztec looking, now now the um, terminology for that may be incorrect, uh, Mesoamerican is what I'll say, because um, I'm not entirely sure of the terminology myself. If you know, please educate me. Um, but it looks like they're wearing uh, Mesoamerican styles um, and jewelry. I saw somebody on Twitter who is a Mesoamerican historian who was asked about Namor's outfit and they said that uh, they really, really liked the piercings all through the nose, through the lip, through the ears. They said that that is very accurate to the kind of um, society that it looks like Marvel is trying to replicate here. However, the this particular historian did not approve of the rest of the outfit that Namor wore. I did ask them what they would prefer, but I have not gotten a response, unfortunately. Um, I was very curious. Um, so if you are a Mesoamerican historian, that is a question that I am still looking for an answer for is um, what are the flaws in their outfits? But by the layman's perspective, it looks pretty good. Uh, myself being a layman, obviously, there. Um, and we also saw Shuri and I think some of the Dormelage as well. Um, and what they'll be looking like in the movie. There's some rumors that Shuri is going to be the next Black Panther and has signed on for a number of films. I'm going to kind of take all of that with a grain of salt because we know that sometimes these kinds of quote leaks will come out and be completely false. So 
I guess we're just gonna have to wait and see about that particular rumor. But as for the looks of the Atlanteans, I think they look fantastic. I'm very curious as to the historical uh, accuracy of them. But other than that, I think it looks like a pretty good start. Um, we also have a director that has been announced for Captain America 4, which we don't have a title for, obviously, because it is Captain America 4, and that's probably so far in the distance we don't even know what year it's coming out yet. But the director will be Julius Onar, who is the director of Cloverfield Paradox, and Captain America 4 is the movie that will be having uh, Anthony Mackie playing Captain America, as opposed to his traditional Falcon role from the comics. Um, so this is really exciting for fans of both Mackie as well as um, his character in any form. Um, I think this will, it's going to be a fun movie. I don't honestly remember if I've seen Cloverfield Paradox. I think I have and I think I liked it. Um, so in any case, uh, totally different. I mean, Captain America, the Cloverfield movies has got to be completely different <laughs> genres, but um Good news, I suppose. Finally, we um, are going to be getting a first look at Marvel Zombies, X-Men 97, and What If Season 2 at the Marvel Studios Animation Panel this uh, next week at San Diego Comic-Con, which will be taking place on the 21st, which is the Thursday of this year's Comic-Con. Um, therefore, the rumors that What If Season 2 is premiering mid-July, definitely false. <laughs> um, I, I, if we're seeing a first look on the 21st, I highly doubt it's going to be premiering on the 20th. So skip over that. Do not expect anything from Disney Plus on the 20th, aside from behind the scenes for Ms. Marvel. The comic book picks that I'm discussing this week are were released on the 5th and 6th of July. I didn't realize it at the time, but there are actually no Marvel comics in my pull list for that week. Um, it is minimal indie stuff and otherwise entirely DC comics. Well, I guess it's four to three, four DC comics and three indie comics is what this list came out to, um, which, which does even out when you look at the fact that this week's pull list has no DC comics on it. So it does even out. DC has its big weeks, Marvel has its big weeks, indie comics have their big weeks, and this one just happened to be big for DC and indies. We're going to talk about Astronaut Down number 2, Batman 125, Dark Crisis 2, Multiversity Teen Justice 2, Poison Ivy 2, Starhenge 1, and very briefly, There's Something Wrong with Patrick Todd number 1. But starting with Astronaut Down number 2, this continues to be fantastic. This is from Aftershock. Um, basically, there is a plague, a cancerous plague that is destroying reality, um, destroying anything physical, basically, and making it impossible to live. It will, it will take over everything and just absolutely obliterate it. Um, and so there's very few points of the world left without that. And he has been, well, his consciousness has been sent to another reality to find a solution basically. A really cool concept. That was like the, the quickest, dirtiest, worst summary of what's actually happening. Let's totally go out and read this. It's super good. In this second issue, we see a flashback to the plague reaching his city and destroying his wife right in front of him. Really horrifying. Um, in the 
in the now, though, he, you know, how we ended the last comic, he completely overshot all the realities that the scientists could predict what was there um, and, and wound up in one way off. They have no idea what this reality might be like. So, um, so wherever it is that he is now, he's there and his wife is there. And so he goes to the bathroom. He activates this emergency overshoot pack in his consciousness, which is this like recording that comes through his mind and calms him with, you know, dopamine and stuff, gives him some chemicals to calm him down, remind him of his mission, tell him he can do this. He's got this, you know, basically give him a, give him a once over of you got this buddy. Um, so it does seem like this, this place that his consciousness has landed in his own body in this other reality is an earth where they managed to fix the, the cancerous plague on reality. Also in this reality, which I find to be very interesting, they've kind of fixed society altogether. Um, it's like, it's really cool. They talk about it a little bit about how it starts. They, they teach how they teach the children in schools, you know, different ways so that by the time they become adults, they have a different perspective on taking care of the earth and caring for your community. Stuff that we just generally don't have um, right now. <laughs> so they, that's what I mean by they've kind of fixed society. Um, but back in his own world, the scientists are using another astronaut, so they're calling it, to send this guy a message because the whole thing is they need the solution for this cancer on reality, like, now, because they're one of the last places left in the world that hasn't been destroyed. And so they send him this message through another one of these astronauts who takes over his alternate reality body and reminds the guy, he comes up to the guy who's having a picnic with his wife at the time, he comes up to him and is like, hey, uh, why haven't you sent us the cure yet? They, like, they're really desperate. Holy shit, the sky's green here? What are you doing having a picnic with your wife while we're dying? And he starts freaking out. The message is across, but he kind of ends up losing it and his bleeds from all of his orifices and it kills him, like, immediately. It's pretty nasty. Um... Also, that happens in his to his IRL body in his actual reality. So, fun stuff. No surviving that. And the issue ends, of course, with a section of the barrier in the guy's real world being broken. Um, so he really needs to find the cure for this cancer of reality that this other world that he's in has discovered and somehow transmit it back to his world. Meanwhile he came here to this other reality with the knowledge that he was just going to be stuck there. But it turns out that that world is doing their own weird consciousness reality leap experimentation, and he might actually have a way home to his home. But will he want that if his uh, dead wife is here? I don't know. I don't know how many issues this is going to be, but I'm thinking somewhere around five or six is going to be appropriate for an ending. Super, super cool stuff. Batman 125 is Chip Zdarsky's first issue on the Batman run at DC. Pretty good. Interesting start. Um, Catwoman is apparently sleeping with other guys, which I don't like because I, 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 are they married or not? I think, I think at this point we're maybe a few months ahead or behind Batcat. So eventually she'll get that gray and black costume and they'll get married and I can stop worrying about her and all these randos, right? <laughs> but anyway, the, the main the main thing seems to be that the penguin has finally snapped, uh, kills himself, and frames Batman. Because I guess he's just gonna do that now. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. 
Dark Crisis number two. Uh, I forget the name of the villain who has, um, who's trying to sacrifice Earth Zero to get, I guess he's trying to get more of the multiverse back by sacrificing Earth Zero and he needs to take all their heroes. I don't, I'm not, uh, I think his name's Pariah. I'm honestly not quite following it, but um, in any case, Deathstroke and his crew of villains are attacking Titan's Tower in full force. He basically wants to make sure that no one takes the Justice League's place, but then later on we find out that he is actually working for Pariah. So he's kind of got two missions. Beast Boy, uh, he will live. He's not dead after being shot in the face. I guess the 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 ability to metamorphosize, metamorphoses, to change into other shapes and stuff was able to make him move his brain out of the way, I guess, from getting shot. Um, and Dick almost gets shot as well, Nightwing, but John Kent shows up as Superman and is able to save him. They have a nice little team up there. Um, John ends up fighting Cyborg Superman and Cyborg himself has to come in and kind of shut all that down. Titan's Tower mostly collapses and Black Adam shows up to just to say that he was he was right about Jonathan Kent not being ready to lead the team and then he just blames uh, Dick on the Titan's Tower having collapsed and goes off on his way. So thanks Black Adam, you're helpful. <laughs> Meanwhile, out in space, Kyle Rayner is rescued from, honestly, wherever it is by the other Green Lanterns, Hal and Joe Mullen. He meets Joel for the first time. Joe is awesome. Um, read Far Sector if you haven't. It is killer good. And now the Green Lanterns are back in full force and they are planning on stopping whatever it is, Pariah, from taking the heroes of Earth and doing whatever his his big nasty plan is. So next issue will be um, apparently focused on the Lanterns as well as Black Adam trying to set up his own team. Good luck with that. Multiversity Teen Justice number two, this is Earth 11, where we have flipped the genders of the traditional Earth Zero heroes. The character Gigi, um, who we met in the first issue, is a homeless girl who is settling into the Church of Blood now very well, um, and they decide to have her talk to new initiates, who in this case are Raven and Troy, who are doing some kind of undercover thing, I imagine. Supergirl goes off to save Robin with Kid Quick, where she is. Uh, it's this island of old people, but they discover that the adults on the island are actually skeletons now, and the elderly that they're seeing were the children, so nothing good happening there. Uh, Clarion reaches out about the Church of Blood uh, because nobody else seems to think that's an issue, so she's going to figure that one out on her own. Meanwhile, Troy and Raven stage a fight so that Raven can get out of the church and spy on them from the outside. But once he's out of the building, the building does not have an inside. It's just blank whiteness. He opens the door and there's nothing there. So that's a bit alarming. Uh, the teens on the island, meanwhile, find Sister Blood and Father Frenzy, the real leaders of the Church of Blood, among the dead on that mysterious island. So if they're there, who is running the church as it is now? Um, we don't know, but we do see that Clarion shows up on the scene and finds a raven, and they see that Troy and the church have just kind of mysteriously disappeared into nothingness. 
Poison Ivy number two, I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, there is a discussion of veganism slash vegetarianism and the idea of monoculture and how that is harmful. Uh, a line here that I really enjoyed was, a healthy ecosystem needs predators to keep plant-eating prey species from overwhelming the earth. Very true. Uh, she meets here and Ivy meets a woman called Jenny at a diner. She is a poet and she makes Ivy question murdering everyone. Uh, but she pulls Jenny, uh, sorry, Jenny pulls out a rune on a piece of paper that she thought looked cool. And for whatever reason, it reminds Ivy of the green man. She thinks of her spores that she's spreading through over the country now and how this diner is the perfect spawning ground, but she's not going to have them take over these people here. Why? The spores are already there, attached to all the people, and this is a truck stop of a town, meaning everyone here will move on, spread the spores with them across the country, taking care of her work for her. The only way to spare the green from total destruction, as Ivy sees it, is to eliminate the problem, which is, in this case, humanity. I honestly get it. I still don't see Ivy as a villain. I kind of see us as the problem. I, I, I understand her perspective. I, I really do. Uh, and then the police arrive to the diner. It turns out the poet has a little side hustle and the police are here for her. The diner, uh, people eating there, they, they all evacuate. And Ivy ends up thinking to herself, you know me, I can't resist cute blue-eyed criminals. Oh, how cute. Obviously talking about Harley there. Uh, so she decides to help. And by helping, she uh, mixes her spores with pheromones which end up killing the police in like this happy trance. Um, and then I guess, I guess the girl Jenny just goes on her own. Um, later, Ivy is out and about and she hears something in the dark. Uh, she's not sure what it is, but she knows she's being followed and she knows that it's related to the rune that Jenny found. Now we see Eden a short while ago, which was during the whole Queen, post Queen Ivy stuff, I guess, where we see Ivy with the gardener. Queen Ivy is apparently gone, but Ivy had the spores inside of her now, and the gardener is telling her that it will eventually kill her, and that Queen Ivy is never going to come back, so she should just be happy with the powers that she's always had. And Ivy says something about, I remember what it felt like to be a god, and that's why she wants it back. Um, I'm not entirely sure how that connects to this. But it's a bit of insight, so I'll take it. Um, she also mentions that, in, in her narration, she mentions a road trip that she spent as a houseplant, which is referring to the Harley Quinn Poison Ivy series from, I believe, 2019? No. Um, or 2018. Uh, she misses Harley. It's really cute. That was such a cute series. Um, it's very much, this was very much a character and story plot building issue. Not a whole lot of forward movement, um, a lot of filling in the blanks, but in a way that really works out. So I dig it. I definitely like this issue. Now, the last two ones we're going to go over a bit quicker here because they were complex. Well, at least Starhenge was. Starhenge was complex. You get here a bit of a love story, a bit of sci-fi, a bit of fantasy, and complete escapism. Basically, it's told over three timelines, not timelines, but eras, right? You get ancient, you get modern, and you get future. Basically, in the future, magic is gone due to a war with machines. So the queen at that time is going to send her son back to ancient times in an attempt to change their own future and keep magic alive for themselves. 
In the modern plotline, there's a very intriguing, if I'm honest, story about a young Wiccan girl and, uh, who is British and living in the U.S. with her aunt um, and dating a American football player. And there's how, the, you know, she's the British Wiccan and he's the American football player. Their worlds are completely different, but they seem to they seem to fit like puzzle pieces and it works out really well. Very intrigued on how that plotline is going to go um, because clearly the character who we're going to be following from the future to the past, I'm not sure how he connects to the modern storyline yet, but I'm very much looking forward to finding out. Starhenge rocks. Uh, finally, there's something wrong with Patrick Todd number one, basically is a teenager making perverts, perverts, perverts commit crimes and then turn themselves in without ever remembering that he made them do it and then he gets to keep the money or the loot whatever it is that he has them do um however he's gonna run into some problems because it looks like someone is finding supers i guess people with superpowers and beheading them which if you're a person with superpowers is probably not good news <laughs> Moving on to the comic book polls. These are comics coming out the uh, 12th and 13th of this month. Um, we're gonna talk a fair amount of indie comics, a fair amount of Marvel comics, and actually I don't have anything from DC for this week for us, but that's okay. We have plenty, and as I mentioned in the beginning, so many beautiful covers this week. So we're gonna focus probably um, for the number ones on the plot and then for everything else we're going to focus on covers because there's some gorgeous variants um but in any case there is a good number of number ones so let's start there with above snakes number one this is from image comics by sean lewis and hayden sherman this catches my interest because sean lewis i know from king spawn uh, which is very popular currently and i also have read him uh in bliss which was an absolutely fantastic eight issue series that I can't recommend enough um, and he also wrote Future State Superman and Metropolis which was a Future State John Kent duo of issues about Above Snakes it says the hit team behind The Few and Thumbs returns with an all new wild as hell miniseries Sean Lewis and Hayden Sherman blah 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 introduce a world where Deadwood style westerns collide with the fantasia of Neil Gaiman in the story of Dirt a man seeking vengeance for his murdered wife with nothing but a talking vulture to prod him on Above Snakes is a fast and hilarious explosion of western tropes and American vengeance that explores where our rage can take us Behemoth number one is from Scout Comics, which I know is a little confusing because Behemoth is also a publisher, but it is not published by Behemoth. It is published by Scout. All right. Uh, this is by Scout Comics from Chris Kipiniak and J.K. Woodward. Teresa is horrified to wake up and find she's turning into a monster. She learns she's not the only one when the government throws her into a detention camp with other girls going through the same transformation. Surrounded by beasts, Teresa tries to hold on to humanity by training to become a government weapon as part as Project Behemoth. Brother of All Men number one from Aftershock Comics. This one is by Zach Thompson and Ewan... I'm thinking is how you say that, Marin. Zach Thompson I know from both Lonely Receiver, which was beautiful, and I Breathe the Body, which was interesting. It is 1928. Veteran of the Great War and part-time private eye Guy Horn travels to a remote community in Western Canada to retrieve his estranged brother from the clutches of a dangerous cult. As Guy struggles to gain control of his own personal demons, he's tantalized by the cause of its charismatic leader, Brother 12. 
in Roman numerals, Brother 12. A tightly plotted horror mystery based on a true story where, where writer Zach Thompson joins forces with artist Ewan Marin for a new miniseries that blends the unexpected twists of hard-boiled detective noir with the uncanny traditions of folk horror. Flavor Girls is also coming out with its number one this week. It is of three issues total. Coming from Boom Studios by Loic Locatelli Cornsqui. I'm so sorry, that was definitely brutalized. Uh, with colorist Eros de Santiago. Naoko, Camille, and V are the Flavor Girls, sacred fruit guardians of Earth. They defend the Earth's they defend the Earth, the source of their power, from the threat of ever-looming aliens whose motives regarding the planet and its peoples are yet unknown. But Sarah, a normal young woman and a UN applicant just doing her best to save the world, gets involved with the Flavor Girls in a way she never could have imagined. It's a magical girl comic. Sounds good to me. Mullet Cop, The Flavor of Danger. Another one with flavor in the title for some reason. This one is from Scout Comics. It's a number one by Tom Lintern. This is another one-man one team. Uh, I think it is a one-shot, as best as I could figure out. It says, an outspoken mall councilwoman mall councilwoman is opposing the evil corporation FOAM as it tries to get its harmful beverage products in the mall. After an attempt is made on her life, Charles assigns Huh. Charles assigns Fred to protect her so she can spread word about the shady dealings. What starts off as a simple bodyguard mission gets sidetracked as the councilwoman must buy a few outlets at the department store all while assassins wait behind every corner. This sounds redonkulous in the best way. Uh, and out of indies into other things, the last number one, well, not the last number one, one of the last number ones is Daredevil. This will be Chip Zartsky and Marco Cicchetto restarting their Daredevil series. Don't know why they didn't just continue with the next number, which I think would have been 40, because I think they made it to 39. And then they're just starting up again with number one. I hate that so much. Just continue the series. Why are you restarting it? Whatever. Uh, again, Chip Zartsky and Marco Cicchetto. After the rain comes the dawn in the wake of Wilson Fisk's violence. I mean, it's, it's not that big of a deal. It's Electra, you know, Electra and Daredevil doing Electra and Daredevil stuff, including the challenges he will have to face in the cow. It's classic Daredevil. What I really wanted to talk about, though, this is one of the ones that has fantastic covers. We have covers by Peter Moko, Joe Casada, the Romitas being John Romita Jr. and Sr., Eric M. Gist, Jorge Fornias, Gabriel Delato, Jung Yen Yoon, Kale Niu, Kyle Hotz, Dan Panosian, Dave Nakayama, Ryan Stegman, and Tony S. Daniels. Daniel. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, that's just the start. That's literally the least exciting of the ones that have all these covers that I'm excited about. That's the least exciting one, okay? Because uh, then we have Axe. I don't know if they're calling it Axe or AXE, whatever the Avengers X-Men Empire. Empire, oh my god. Avengers X-Men Eternals. <laughs> It's the Eve of Judgment one-shot, uh, kicking the whole thing off, right? Uh, it's the one-shot leading into the axe. It's by Kieran Gillen and Pascal Ferry. It basically just says, Shots fired, judgment is coming. The Eternals know that the mutants have conquered death, but what are they going to do about it? The oldest immortals on Earth eye up the newest, and the doomsday clock starts to tick toward Judgment Day. So basically, kicking off the events of the Eternals versus the X-Men with the Avengers, I guess, stuck in the middle. Uh, but the covers for this one, really gorgeous covers. We have Phil Noto, John Cassidy, David Nakayama, 
uh, I guess one called Mr. Garcine, Lucas Wernick, and Ashley Witter. So the Phil Noto, and Phil Noto's fantastic, we all know that. Um, and the, But then John Cassidy, uh, David Nakayama has a really cool um, um, Wanda, Scarlet Witch, Hellfire Gala variant. And then Lucas Wernick has a variant of Echo as the Phoenix, because that's what her role is right now in the comics, Maya Lopez. Um, and that one is called the Women of Axe variant. And then the Men of Axe variant is by Ashley Mitter, oh, sorry, Witter, um, and it is featuring Cyclops. So some really, really good ones to keep an eye out for. Additionally, the Hellfire Gala gets its one shot this week, X-Men Hellfire Gala number one. Uh, it says a new team revealed at last year's gala, mutants changed the face of the solar system, terraforming Mars and claiming it for mutant kind. Do you think you can't afford to miss this year's gala? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is by Gary Duggan with art by Matteo Loli, Chris Anka, Carlos Villa, and Russell Dodderman. Um, the covers of this one, we have a stunning art germ Hellfire Gala cover featuring Marvel Girl, aka Jean Grey. We have a pretty cool Art Adams cover, an Adam Hughes cover featuring the Hellfire Gala outfits of She-Hulk, um, Black Widow, and I don't remember, I don't have it in front of me, but there's a third, there's a third character on it who I don't recall, but it, oh, I think it's Scarlet Witch. And she's like holding up Scarlet Witch in Black Widow. We have a David Nakayama variant again. We have a Nick Dragota variant and we have a Carlos Gomez variant, which is kind of teasing the new team. If that really is the new team, I'm curious how long that's gonna last. Eight Billion Genies number three of eight is not included among the covers, the, the delightful covers. It is by Charles Soule and Ryan Brown coming from Image Comics. This will be eight issues. We explore the first eight days after eight billion genies appeared on Earth, offering one wish to every man, woman, and child. The wish-proof Lampwick Tavern has provided a safe haven for our eight heroes so far, but now they must undertake a crucial mission into a world utterly remade by frivolous and bizarre wishes, with a special appearance from history's most most famous drunkards. So I'm curious what that is. Um, but again, this is going to be the first issue was eight minutes. The eight minutes after the uh, the wishes. Second issue was eight hours. Third issue is eight days. Fourth issue I'm sure is going to be eight weeks, eight months, eight years, something like that, right? Um, super cool series. Definitely check this one out. Immortal Red Sonia from Dynamite Comics has its fourth issue by Dan Abnett and Alessandro Miracolo. I'm hoping that we will finally get some consistency in the art this time because it has been hugely varied in the absolute worst way possible and it's not a good way. Uh, but this one we have variants by Jungian Yoon, Joseph Michael Lisner, Liri Lee, I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but it's L-E-I-R-I-X Lee. Uh, Lobos and a cosplay cover as well. I love the Liri Lee covers because she does um, like really awesome like manga style faces um, and then she also does ultraviolet ones which are like this cool purple and green like I just think it's awesome. They're cool designs. Immortal X-Men number four is another one with some beautiful covers. Uh, this is their Hellfire Gala tie-in and our covers are by mark brooks betsy cola megan hedrick and phil noto now every single one of these covers is worth purchasing the mark brooks cover has emma frost naked in bed with red silk bed sheets she's naked under the bed sheets the betsy cola has is a pride cover um with uh destiny 
really cool. The Megan Hedrick cover is friggin' stunning. It's the design cover for Emma Frost's gala outfit this season. Completely bonkers good. And then the Phil Noda one is a Quiet Council, like, headshot portrait of Emma. And you know I love Phil Noto, and he killed it. He just, ooh, chef's kiss. Absolutely stunning covers, every single one of them. New Mutants 27, um, uh, we're, we're still doing stuff in Limbo with Magic and Mirage and Wolfsbane and Madeline Pryor. And for some reason in the solicitation, they're still trying to frame Madeline as the villain here, which I have yet to see happen in the comic. Covers for this one are by Lionel Francis Yu for the main cover. We have a Betsy Cola Pride cover, again, featuring, um... Karma. Sorry, I had to take a second. <laughs> and then we have a Russell Donnerman Hellfire Gala design cover featuring magic and a very bad design. It looks just like her um, Dark Child outfit. There's nothing really interesting to it. And a Marcus Toe cover. Finally, wrapping up the uh, pull list for this week, Captain Marvel number 39, Trial by Magic and Fire. We are still doing uh, stuff with Carol being trapped trapped by Agatha Harkness and Binary kind of taking over on Earth in her place. This is by Kelly Thompson with art by Juan Frigeri and Alvaro Lopez. We have covers of this week by Arby Silva, Terry Dodson, and David Baldio. And that Terry Dodson cover, I will literally murder someone if I don't get my hands on it because it is a homage to Avenging Spider-Man number nine, which is the first appearance of Carol Danvers in the Captain Marvel suit design. Uh, also a cover done by the Dodsons. And so it's Carol and she's got, she's being hit by some bullets and she's flying and, and Spider-Man is clinging to her back. Well, this homage, it's binary being hit by bullets and Spider-Woman clinging to her back. And I, for the love of everything, I need that on my wall displayed next to the other one. What did I tell you? Fantastic covers this week. Ms. Marvel, the penultimate episode, was episode 5, premiering last week on Disney+. Plus. It was titled Time and Again. This episode, we already saw the scene of, in a previous episode, of Najma and Aisha and their companions finding the bangle and then getting split up. Now we see that down the line, um, Aisha, Aisha continues to be on the run from soldiers of Britain, most likely others as well. She runs into her future husband, and of course they fall in love and marry. When partition happens, they are Muslim in a Hindu part of the country, as it is now, and Aisha uses this to help convince her husband that they need to flee to Pakistan. In reality, she was finally discovered by Najma, who wants her to use the bracelet and to take them all home to their own dimension. Najma is worried, or sorry, Aisha is worried about her family and what might happen if she actually uses the bracelets and what happens to them if she gets taken with it. So the decision is they must run. In the discussion between Najma and Aisha, we learn that the, their people um, in their dimension are users of magic, calling it by that actual term, saying magic. Um, you also have to note that their eyes gl do glow purple when they power up, so my purple dimension theory is still pretty solid. Although we don't get an answer for that in this episode. 
at the train station where we know that um, Aisha gets split up with her family, Aisha sends her husband off with Sana, who is their very young daughter at the time, and she fends off Najma alone, getting stabbed in the process. And this is where Kamala comes in. Having been thrown through time, she discovers Aisha dying among the crowds at the train station. With the last of her energy, Aisha uses, the ma- uses her magic to... I guess, charm the bangle with the words, what you are seeking is seeking you. Um, because her young daughter, Sana, was split off from her father in the crowds and crying out for him and him for her, seeking one another. In that moment, with that magic, it would appear that Aisha spelled the bangle to always seek out their bloodline, leading it to attaching to Kamala, so to say, years down the line. After discovering her dying great-grandmother, Kamala watches Aisha die there, which is unfortunate, and takes the photo of her family from her to keep. She hears her grandmother, the young Sana, crying for her father, so she finds her. The crowd is too thick for them both, so Kamala makes a few stepping discs for Sana to jump across towards her father. But when Kamala is knocked over, the steps break up and end up magically leading Sana to her father in a string of star shapes. Of course, this all comes out that Kamala is the thing. Kamala was always the one, right? To, to lead Sana to back to her father. And you may think, how is this possible? Well, I go back to the what you seek is seeking you. The Bengal seeks their bloodline. So coming off Kamala, it, it like she shoot, you know, she, she shoots the power off of her. And so then it goes and it seeks the next person of their bloodline. Sana was there. And the next one was the great Sana's father, Kamala's great-grandfather, right? So that's kind of how it led her to her father. That's that's the way that I think it works out really well. So after they reunite um, successfully, Kamala is sent back to the future where everyone there has been blasted flat on their backs with the force of her return, it seems. It looks like it all kind of happened over the curse of a mere mo- course of a mere moment. Um, But left in its wake is a crack in the universe leading, apparently, to the Noor dimension. Immediately, one of the other Noor people run to it, but before she can reach the gap, it seems to reach out and attack her, turning her into, like, dark, glittery stone before dissolving her down into dust. Clearly, this is not the welcome home that they were all expecting, uh, but the gap is going to continue to expand and take over Earth if it, somebody doesn't go in there and close it. Now, notably, possibly notably, um, is that when this person turns to stone, it looks very somewhat like it did when the humans touched Terrigen crystals in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It would turn them into stone. It's not quite the same color or texture, but it is somewhat similar. Um, basically, if you're unaware of what I'm talking about, in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they went over Inhumans and the process of becoming Inhuman. If you have the Inhuman gene, uh, if you are exposed to Terrigen crystals, or as it became Terrigen mists in the comics, you would um, become enveloped in a cocoon and then when you pop out of the cocoon you are your inhuman form whatever that may be now kamala is an inhuman uh when the terrigen mists in the comics spread across the world the whole other thing uh she becomes ms marvel gains her powers blah blah um so people are kind of wondering is this 
them doing that in a way. Additionally, if you are not inhuman and you touch the Terrigen Crystals, you will just turn to stone. And that's how they did it in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. In Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., when you, if you were inhuman, if you had the gene and you touched the stone, you didn't become in a cocoon. You became covered in stone. But then the stone would crack and underneath you would reveal your inhuman self. But then if you were human and you touched the stones and you don't have the inhuman gene, it would just turn you fully to stone. So that's what the connection that we're, people are kind of seeing, myself included. Is this going to be something that they're going to kind of relate to the inhumans? Are they just putting in there as a like somewhat fun Easter egg? Um, are they just going to leave it there and never really explain it? Honestly, I feel like that's probably the most likely alternative. Um, I feel like a big issue with the current Marvel stuff is that there's just a lot of missed opportunities where they could go through and fully explain something to connect it to the comics, but they just kind of leave it there and leave people to make their own assumptions, which just 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 finish connecting the dots. Just finish connecting the dots, okay? <laughs> it, it irritates me that they just kind of leave these open-ended, like, unanswered things like that. So that's that's what I'm seeing is going to happen with that. The stone covering the uh, the people of the newer dimension. I don't think we're ever going to actually get that explained. Anyway, um, thinking of her son, uh, Najma ends up being the one to close the gap closing the rip in space and letting it kill her in the process. Though interestingly, when she dies with her son on her mind, it seems that her power from the newer dimension is transferred through her to her son, Kamran, who is in New Jersey and his fists start to glow very similarly to Kamala's. Um, but it's a much lighter blue, which is just how his powers in the comics are colored. It's they did it very accurately that way. Uh, Kamala's mother, who is there with them in Pakistan, ends up seeing her use her powers and gets in the know on her daughter and her mother and their family is magical. Her her grandmother was not, you know, did not abandon them. She, you know, she gets the whole story now. So she does seem proud of her daughter, if worried, but yay, we're all on the same page finally. Also, um, Kareem, who is the red dagger guy, gives her his red scarf. Um, and the Ordu necklace that had her name on it breaks into the shape of a lightning bolt. So those are two things that are going to get uh, put into her costume, of course, for the last episode. Meanwhile, Kamran goes to Bruno, who he's still calling Brian, for help. At first, I thought he was going to attack him, which I was really hoping wasn't going to happen. And it didn't It didn't happen. Uh, he really is just asking for help with these new powers because he was able to help Kamala. Bruno takes him to his place where Kamran learns that his name isn't actually Brian and is adequately horrified by that knowledge because he's been calling him Brian this whole time and he did not know that that was not his name. <laughs> uh, so they, they, they really do seem to be on like a super direct path to this beautiful bromance. Of course, then the DODC drones show up. Uh, I guess they followed Kamran here somehow, tracked his powers, I don't know, but they blow a hole in Bruno's apartment and we're going to have to deal with that in the next episode. So in the finale, Kamala is likely going to have to save them from the DODC, the Department of Damage Control, somehow. Her mom is no doubt going to help her with her suit. Maybe we'll learn exactly what the Noor dimension is. I'm really hoping. I'm also still hoping for a killer cameo. Fingers crossed for Monica Rambeau. Will Kamala embiggen fully in her body? I really hope so. Is the evil racist DODC lady putting on a front and is actually good? 
I also hope so, because she's pretty horrifying. <laughs> is the Noor dimension related to Inhumans at all? Again, I doubt we're going to get that explained. It just kind of feels like it's appropriately in their pattern of putting something out there and then not really following up on it so that we can come to that conclusion, but it doesn't actually hurt anything if we don't. Which leads us into Star Trek Strange New Worlds, the season one finale, which was titled Equality of Mercy. And boy, did I get excited watching this one. I wrote, I, I, so I wrote about it as I watched it, so we're going to get a little bit involved here. So Equality of Mercy. Now, seven years in the future. Well, okay. So backtracking a second. I did not watch the Discovery episodes. Was it Discovery? Star Trek Discovery? I feel like that's somewhat accurate. Anyway, um, I did not watch that se the first season where it kind of kicked off Strange New Worlds, because apparently Pike and everybody shows up in that. Um, I did not know that until recently, so I guess what happens in all of that is Pike um, somehow sees what happens to himself seven years in the future, where he is going to end up dying with all of these cadets, basically. <laughs> Um, in an accident. It's going to be a complete accident. So now, uh, in modern, in his time, we now have seven years in the future Pike, himself from seven years in the future, who in that reality survived the incident. Um, he comes to talk to modern Pike about how he's about to break the future, basically. Um, what Pike is doing, he, since he knows the names of the cadets who are going to die with him there in the future, he's like, oh, I'm just going to write them a letter and be like, hey, in seven years, don't be at this place at this time. That's it. That's all he's going to do. And so then, you know, the whole idea being they don't show up and neither does he. And so nobody has to die in that seven year future. Right. So that happens. And then this timeline, the seven years in the future, Pike, Pike comes back from to speak to modern Pike from to from anyway, he um, he he lived. Everything worked out the way that this Pike wanted it to. However, there are some really bad things that have now come out of that so that he wants he wants the modern pike to see what is happening in his future so that he can decide whether or not he wants to send those letters and save the lives of those cadets and himself we'll get to all that all right so it's it's, it's a lot of timey-wimey stuff sorry not sorry so he does a time thing modern pike does uh, puts himself in his body in seven years it's the whole consciousness in the seven years oh god i'm just making this worse and worse aren't i he goes seven years his consciousness goes seven years in the future okay so seven years in the future um pike was performing a wedding for two i guess cadets i don't know spock is his number one and uhura has her hoop earrings which i thought was really exciting he does end up telling future Spock what's going on, that he is from seven years in the past. Um, so they, together, they decide that they have to kind of just let things play out to see why this future is so much worse than the ones where Pike and those cadets do actually die. Um, they think that in the other timeline after his death, another pilot would be here in that moment meeting the Romulans instead of Pike. That, pi that pilot would have been Kirk, as as we, you know, come to that conclusion there. At this point in history, 
Um, nobody has even seen the Romulans. They don't know what they look like or sound like. They're just these like mysterious villains. We also learn that Laon is on the Farragut, which is captained by James T. Kirk, who is Paul Wesley from the Vampire Diaries. Super awesome. Did not expect to like that so much, but he like completely kills it as James Kirk, like indisputably so. Um, they can't intercept the Romulans, this Romulan ship that they're following, on the way back to the negative zone, which is where it comes from, so they plan on shadowing it, because while they're cloaked, the Romulans can't see them, right? So they're just gonna shadow it while it's cloaked, guess where it is, and hopefully, eventually, like, follow it out of the negative- into the negative zone or whatever. So, um, I've mentioned in a few episodes in the past this guy Sam, who was a uh, a Kirk as well. He is not his dad. He is his brother, his older brother. That's why my timeline confusion was so wrong. Um, so the timeline works out. It is his brother, not his dad. Gotcha. Uh, so Sam tells Pike about his brother, his brother James, or as he calls him, Jim, I think, or Jimmy. How he bends the rules, he uses his charm to get what he wants, he's a wild card, etc, etc. All things that we as fans know. Meanwhile, uh, there is a comet that comes by, um, and they're passing by, and it somehow bounces an image of the interior of the Romulan ship to the sensors of the Enterprise. So they are able to see inside the Romulan ship for the first time ever. This is a beautiful scene. Um, it's, it's, so the, the big reveal is that the Romulans are like this, the brother species to, um, to the Vulcans, right? So they're pretty much identical in appearance. Very similar in appearance, I guess. Um, so the scene where they, they reveal this footage of what Romulans look like was beautiful. Um, you look and you, they put the footage up on the screen and it's this wild dramatic music. And then you see the pilot turn in the chair and she looks back at the others. And it's that thing where her whole face is, is in shadow except for a strip of light that's going across her eyes. And she looks back at, she looks back at the other group and there's this dramatic music and it starts, the camera starts on the right panning left across the four people of the team that are there on the Enterprise deck and they each turn their heads on the beat in sync of the camera going across them turning their heads to the left until we go over there and we see Spock. It pans out to the whole group and then zooms in on just Spock's, Spock's face and then beat with the music and a tiny little like ding of a little triangle chime he raises one eyebrow and slightly turns his head of like oh? absolutely perfect scene. I, I can't describe it any better than that, but it is just like, I'll post it on Twitter. It is the best scene I've ever seen in Star Trek ever. So then we, we get to meet Kirk officially now. Kirk beams over, his brother is there because they just want to have like somebody who knows him there, right? And his, his brother's already on the Enterprise crew, so he makes the introductions, very good. Um, the plan basically becomes when the Romulans pass through the comet's trail, they will uh, the Enterprise will get their exact location and be able to disarm the Romulan ship 
and then possibly open up a dialogue. Of course, this goes completely wrong. The Romulans already knew what was going on and pop up behind the Farragut when they least expect it, attacking them and the Enterprise. Um, so the Enterprise ends up having to draw their fire in order to save the Farragut, which was a moment from absolute obliteration. It does work, but the Enterprise does take a plasma hit from the Romulan ship. They have to rescue the other ship's crew, which does reunite Pike with La'an. And that's when we bring up Una. Pike asks La'an when the last time that she contacted Una was, and La'an says she can't. No one is allowed to contact her. And then you realize, holy shit, La'an, La'an, Una's in prison. And you got, and then you remember, she's Illyrian. Her people were genetically modified, and that is illegal in Starfleet. That's one of Starfleet's, like, weird, um... But one of the very few unfair things, you know, that's still kind of unjust things that Starfleet still has stuck with. And they're in a very forward-thinking, progressive uh, facility, except for when it comes to the Illyrians. So, holy shit, we, this, Luna's in prison for being Illyrian. This is not a good future. Um, so meanwhile, Pike opens a channel to the Romulan ship and offers a ceasefire, he says, um, he wants to talk for the first time in a hundred years, and they surprisingly hail back. Um, he does talk to the other captain. They make a point of showing that Kirk is watching him, um, studying the style of Pike as a captain to see, you know, what Pike does that works well with these new enemies and learning from that, I would guess. Um... The Romulan captain says that Pike's words are a sign of weakness, but he does agree to a two-hour ceasefire. Aboard the Romulan vessel, a crew member questions this decision, saying that it is the Romulan way to attack when you have the chance, meaning they should go back on their promise of ceasefire and take the Enterprise out. The captain then pulls this guy into a hallway, kind of like you would see in an office. He pulls him to the side, talk to him. He talks to him about his father and how his father died in apparent glory to, in service to Romulus. The captain says, no, his death was a failure. It was a loss of something that could have, um, they could have just retreated and remained an asset, but now they are weaker due to his stubbornness because he is now not a part of their team. The commander, um, I guess he's the commander, he says that he has to see this through to try and keep them strong and whole. And if it doesn't work, they're going to have the war that they so desperately want. Um, but then it turns out that this subordinate guy, he contacts the Romulan Empire himself and the fleet arrives. Good thing Kirk just went off on his own in a shuttle and came back with a fleet of his own. It's not really a fleet. It is a bunch of unmanned drone ships. The Romulans don't know that. Still, the Romulans destroy this first ship that we encountered and we're trying to make peace with, saying that this was a weak leak. A weak leak for having been found, been discovered by the Federation. And the Romulans then go on to declare war on the Federation. In the subsequent attack, many, many die, including the bride from the almost wedding when we started this whole mind jumping thing up um, and Spock loses a leg as well as is pretty much physically destroyed from head to toe. Um, so when Kirk then, sorry, when Pike then goes back to the future, back into his present, 
uh, he decides to delete the letter to the cadet writing him not to be at that explosion in seven years, ultimately deciding that his and the cadet's deaths at that time will be less consequential because Kirk was right. They should have destroyed the Romulan ship as soon as they saw it, but Pike convinced him not to. With Pike dead seven years down the line, Kirk will be the captain then, he will destroy the Romulan ship, and there will not be a war coming out of that entire situation. Very complex. Um, so Pike ends up wandering the ship, basically talking to his crew, knowing that he has the next seven years to spend with these people before it all comes to an end for him. Um, it's kind of a happy note, but then at the last second, the uh, Starfleet people show up and arrest Una for being Illyrian. So we still have a little bit of that disastrous future that we need to, to stop from happening. Specifically, Una being in jail for seven years for being an Illyrian Starfleet, because that is obviously super messed up, which Pike agrees, and we end the episode with him swearing that it isn't over. Actually, we end the season that way. Um, next season, no idea when it'll be, but you can sign me up. I will be there. At long last, the main event, or something, the Thor Love and Thunder reviews. Now, I've been trying to figure out what I'm going to say for a spoiler-free review. Um, I really don't know what- I, I liked it. I will give it a solid 8.75 out of 10. I would say 8.25 at the lowest. Um, 8.75 to 8.25, or the reverse, 8.25 to 8.75 is my, is my official rating of this movie. It did have one or two things that I did not particularly jive with, but in general, I had way more fun at this movie than I've had at Multiverse of Madness or No Way Home, which I was cringing my way through for a lot of, to be honest. Did not cringe my way through Love and Thunder, had a good time, um... Definitely think that if you enjoy these characters, I am seeing a lot of people who are calling the humor of the movie disrespectful. I don't see how that works out genuinely. Um, I do feel like James Gunn and Taika Waititi have very extremely different styles of superhero movies. I know a lot of people are comparing them and saying, oh, they just do jokes and so many assaulted jokes. I don't agree with that. James Gunn's sense of humor and Taika Waititi's sense of humor are vastly different. Um, I 100% I prefer Taika's all the way. 7 out of, you know, 24-7, 365, but always prefer Taika's sense of humor. Um, James Gunn's sense of humor is, mm, it's okay. But that's my review. That's my spoiler for your review. It's the best I can do without giving absolutely everything away. Um, but for the spoiler review, which is going to start now, um, I have a link to an IGN article that has a pretty basic plot overview. If you want to see just basically what happens in the movie, there's your link to the IGN article that goes over that. What I'm going to go over is various plot points. We're going to go over New Asgard. Jane's cancer storyline, gore in the comics, the necrosword, omnipotent city, or omnipotent city, I don't know why I always say it the other way, it's the, the eternity room, singularity, the end credit scenes, guns and roses, and then just general interesting stuff. So, starting off with New Asgard, obviously we know Valkyrie is king, and New Asgard takes place, or exists now, on Tonsberg, which is actually the oldest town in Norway and fictionally has been tied to the Asgardians in the MCU before already with a flashback 
in the first Thor movie, revealing that Odin led the Asgardians to war against the Frost Giants in Tonsberg. That was about 1000 AD. Um, and then Red Skull discovered the cult of Odin, worshippers keeping the Tesseract hidden there in Captain America, the first Avengers. So this has already been a place that we've seen a lot. Um, some of the fun... Uh, stuff that we see, we see Infinity Cones, which is an ice cream place, poster for a band called Mad Titan. Um, let's see, we, there's a couple of fun stuff. Uh, Val Rise Aragorn, who is her, um, her Pegasus, he is unnamed in this, so we don't know if it's actually Aragorn. But in the comics, interestingly, Dane Whitman is also connected to Aragorn, the Pegasus, having owned him, or you know, been his person before uh, he goes on to be Valkyries. So it's possible that could be a connection in the future. We see Matt Damon, Luke's, Luke Hemsworth, and Sam Neill returning among the actors of the show, showing the uh, the death of Odin and the arrival of Hela. Uh, we get they are accompanied by Melissa McCarthy, who plays Hella, and Ben Falcone, who is McCarthy's real-life husband, uh, appears during the curtain call, so he must have been, like, the director or something of that little uh, pageant show. We also learn that Meek is female, or is at least now identifying as female, and is serving as a uh, chief aide to King Valkyrie. Additionally, we were supposed to see Valkyrie get her queen in this movie, I missed that clearly. What, what? When would that happen? Was that the goddess that she kissed? Was it Meek? I'd like to know because I missed that clearly. Now Jane's cancer storyline um, we'll obviously touch on as we get further along, uh, but this is something that they did not really say that was going to happen in the tr through the trailers, um, and nobody was really sure if that was going to be involved in the movie. Obviously, the cancer storyline is the bulk of Jane's storyline as the Mighty Thor. It's what's happening in the background all, at all times. Um, and so we weren't really sure if they were going to go with that. And they did. They they pretty much went exactly... Um, <laughs> they, went, they went exactly the way that it does in the comics. And it was... It, it tugs on those heartstrings. Um... It, it was it was some it was quite something. Um, when we first see Jane, she is going through chemotherapy, and she can't help but give a lecture on her Einstein Rosen bridge, which is the uh, Bifrost, right? When she sees another cancer patient reading her book, and it includes her tearing out a page so that she can make a three D model, so the kid will understand the what the what the bridge is like, right? Um, and that explains, of course, why Jane has such a good understanding of wormholes and all of that. Um, and you, and we also get revealed not too long into Jane's inclusion in the movie. Um, the effects of Jane's chemotherapy are being reversed every time she picks up Mjolnir. Mjolnir kind of chose Jane as the new Thor. Um, kind of she chose it as well. It was kind of a mutual thing in this case. Um, it sensed that she needed it, more or less. Um, and then it comes to her aid even when she's in the hospital where Thor has told her, stay here. You can't pick up Yulnir anymore because it will kill you. Um, but it does come to her uh, playing homage to Mighty Thor, Mighty Thor 704, where Jane sensed that Asgard needed her help, and so the, the hammer comes next to her hospital bed and just kind of 
sits there and tempts her into becoming Thor for the last time. Gore in the comics, uh, his origin from the Jason Aaron story is pretty much um, what it is in the comics. It's his family was was destroyed because the gods refused to do anything. Um, we can see his backstory in the comics in Thor, God of Thunder, number six, if you are interested in. He takes the kids that he steals from Asgard to a shadow realm, which in the comics is a parallel dimension under the rule of the world warlord Ka, who has fought Hulk in the past by possessing his own shadow. Uh, we did not see Ka in the movie at all, but again, it's just one of those things they could have gone through and explained fully, but are just kind of leaving it open-ended there. Um, also in the comics, Thor becomes unworthy when Jane picks up the hammer. Um, before Jane picks up the hammer. That is why he is not Thor. He is Odin's son. Um, and the reason that it happens is because at one point in history, Gore basically told Thor, you know, you're, you're a piece of shit. You're not a real god. <laughs> and during the original Sin story in the comics, um, all of these secrets come out and it ends up being Nick Fury Sr. who's telling them. And what he tells Thor is Gore was right. And in that moment, Thor feels his worthiness lift off of him and he can no longer hold the hammer. And he drops the hammer on the moon as it is. And then later on, uh, Jane shows up and picks it up because she knows there must always be a Thor. It calls to her to come get it because it cannot just not be wielded. Um, and so that's how that kind of happens in the comics, the connection between Gore and Thor and Jane. The Necrosword is another really cool thing from the comics. It is wielded by Null. Null is the god of the symbiotes. He is a being who ruled the cosmos before light and life. He was angered by the Big Bang and the work of the Celestials to spin galaxies into existence, so he created the All Black, which is his Necrosword, as a weapon to slay them. He can slay basically eternal beings with his Necrosword. In the comics, the Necrosword is actually a symbiote, which was created by Noel. Um, yes, he is the god of the symbiotes. Yes, we mean symbiotes as Venom. It's a whole thing. If you would like to know more about this, check out King and Black from Marvel. It's just came out in the past year or two, so it's fairly modern Marvel history. Um, we also see in the beginning of the movie, uh, when Gore finds his son god, they have just defeated the wielder of the Necro Sword, who we will note is kind of an oily shiny black color. This is very directly taken from the comics, the character Silver Surfer Black. Uh, the Silver Surfer kind of gets infected by the Necrosword, um, and this blackness takes over his whole body, and that's why they call him Silver Surfer Black. He is not wielding the Necrosword, he, I think he just gets wounded by it. Um, and that ends up being his new look. And so it was really cool seeing they, they definitely took the appearance of whoever the wielder of the Necrosword was, who they did not name, I don't think. They took that appearance definitely from Silver Surfer Black in the comics. It was not the Silver Surfer, but it was definitely that same appearance that he took when he was infected by the Necrosword. Now, uh, the Necrosword is then picked up or then chooses Gore to wield it there um, because it's, you know, a being of evil and it senses that he wants to, you know, do the bad. <laughs> 
Now, Omnipotent City, this is where Thor and his companions go when they need help defeating Gore. It is the gathering of the Council of Godheads. Omnipotent City in the comics was designed visually by Asad Ribic, as seen in Thor, God of Thunder, number three. It was established after the first great war of the gods as a meeting place and a governing chamber. We do see celestials all through the movie, most notably in Omnipotent City, uh, where Gore builds his and where Gore builds his gateway to eternity. Um, there is still no mention in the movies or in Disney or in MCU media yet of a huge celestial head and hand jutting out of the earth um, since Eternals. So that could be just a timeline thing. We haven't reached when the Eternals movie has happened yet, right? Uh, things that we see in Omnipotent City, we have mentions of Ra. We see Bast, who is played by Akosio Sabat. Uh, let's see, the credits reference Artemis and Minerva, but we don't actually know which ones those were. There are mentions of Tumatawenga, who is a Maori god who is known by his Hawaiian name Ku in the comics. There is also a Aztec pantheon feathered serpent known as Quetzalcoatl. I'm so sorry. Um, but he is from the comics as well. Um, let's see. We see Dionysus. He is helping his father Zeus organize their next orgy, which is kind of a, a mild running joke and is the most James Gunn style joke of the whole movie. Uh, the credits also identify an Aztec god, an Elch god, a Maori goddess, a Mayan god, a Jadumuri god, and a goddess of the dead. Um, let's see. You do see in the crowd a blue god with some nifty headgear who appears to be uh, Mesoamerican in design, uh, which could possibly be a reference towards Wakanda Forever, where we're going to meet the Mesoamerican tribe led by Namor. Uh, let's see. Valkyrie apparently has a deal with Old Spice. I put that in the, the wrong section. That was supposed to be in the new Asgard section. Um, and then we see Nini. The Nani, who is apparently the Cronin god, um, Korg being Cronin. <laughs> we had some interesting insights to Cronin society in this movie as well. Um, let me see. Did I get all of them there? Obviously, we have Zeus played by Russell Crowe, which Thor says he styled himself after, and he's been a, he ends up being hugely disappointing, of course. Um, I think that's everything from the Omnipotent City, everything we saw in the background. Um, and, then, and then the names in the credits. Not as many direct Easter eggs as I would have thought, but again, just kind of leaving them out there and letting us come to our own conclusions has been very frustrating. Now, later on, we get the heroes to the Eternity Room, which is where basically uh, Gore is trying to open the gateway to Eternity with the uh, um, Stormbreaker hammer axe thing. So we see, uh, we saw them in the trailer. There is statues of Uatu, Lady Death, the Living Tribunal, possibly Arishim, the judge, uh, is the celestial one that collapses. Um, and we get a bunch of superhero kids in what is a really cool scene. Thor shares the power of, um, or Odin's son shares the power of Thor with the children who pick up rocks and things to use as weapons and to fight Gore's symbiote creatures. They're not called symbiote creatures, but it's what 
they're literally taken from King and Black in the comics, so they're definitely his symbiote creatures um, that are from the Necrosword, his using the Necrosword. Uh, Axel is a new character entirely. He is Heimdall's son, who is empowered with the Bifrost, and that becomes a really cool device that they use through the movie. We also get two of Chris Hemsworth's children in the movie. One is the young Thor uh, in the intro, and then one is Love at the end of his daughter, played by his daughter. Um, actually, it turns out this movie had kids from Christian Bale, Natalie Portman, and Taika Waititi all appearing as some of the kids who were uh, captured by Gore and then in that giant fight uh, in the Eternity Room, which was super cool. Uh, we also have a child reveal that he is a lichen, so we officially have werewolves in the Marvel Universe. I doubt that will actually tie into the... Um, the future werewolf project they have planned, uh, Werewolf by Night. I highly doubt it's going to connect to that. Again, just a weird little Easter egg that they're not going to bother making that connection with. Uh, and Eternity as a character, if you're curious about Eternity, Eternity is the anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic representation of the entire universe and is probably is easily one of the most important beings in existence next to Death, Oblivion, and Infinity. Um, Eternity was introduced in Doctor Strange comics, Strange Tales 138 in 1965. Um, they are the nearly omnipotent, omnip I always say omnipotent, I gotta stop, omnipotent personification of the cosmos, um, and they exist as a separate entity in each multiverse. So to find... Uh, to basically, Gore wants to get a wish. This is not a thing that comes from the comics. If you meet Eternity in the comics, you do not get a wish. That is not a thing. They made that up, which I was kind of like, that's kind of cheesy. That was also the one thing I really didn't like was how Gore, you know, sees Eternity. He's about to wish for, for the destruction of all the gods, and then he just changes his mind and wishes for his daughter instead. It, it was it, that was the thing that I was I, I hate that the villain changes their mind at the at the third act and that's how everything is solved. It, it feels so lazy, um, but so he ends up wishing to have his daughter back, and that's where we get into singularity. Um, how does singularity connect to this? Possibly not at all. But when we see in the reflection of the water at the center of all the universe, um, we see Gore's daughter. In the reflection and she is eternity and she has the glowing eyes um the spacey body and then when it, it pans up to see her standing next to him it's gore's daughter um so it's a little bit eternity is no longer there so it's a little bit ambiguous as to did eternity just embody itself into a human body because it wanted to um, it gets a little bit into, did Eternity just spawn its own child and make it Gore's daughter? Um, and also, there, I, there's no way it just resurrected Gore's daughter. Because then we also see that she has the powers. Gore didn't have powers when he was just a regular guy. Why would his daughter? So clearly she is some kind of spawn of Eternity. Um, which is why people are talking about Singularity. Singularity is a kind of ambiguous character who was brought in um, to Marvel Comics in the first A-Force series. We do not know canonically, officially, um, what Singularity is. 
there has been no explanation. But if you look at Singularity, Singularity looks just like Eternity. Eternity, when you saw in the movie, has the humanoid outline, but the inside was like masses of galaxies and stars and everything. Singularity is exactly the same way, but she is like a 13-year-old girl. Um, and so, and she doesn't, she doesn't really speak very well, but she ends up befriending all of these female heroes in Battle World during Secret Wars. Um, and then after Secret Wars is over, she actually ends up coming back uh, a couple of times. She comes back to another A-Force comic, and then she comes back more recently. She showed up in a Captain Marvel comic, in, in the Captain Marvel series, I should say, which was really exciting because she is a pocket universe. That's pretty much all we really know about Singularity is she's a pocket universe. We don't know where she came from. If she's actually related to Eternity, it would make sense based on her design, but it is all up in the air still. It's possible that they're going to use this movie to give her a backstory of some sort in the comics. Um, but in any case, um, I think love as they're calling her right because the movie ends with she has the she has stormbreaker he has mjolnir and they go off together heroing as love and thunder fuck you taika watiti that was a beautiful it was a beautiful the way that the last line kind of wrapped it up was gorgeous but she very clearly has powers so she's definitely not just straight up gore's daughter she's got to be some part of eternity spawned off and that's why people are talking about singularity now the end credit scenes we have two end credit scenes the first one has zeus revealed as not dead because remember thor stabbed him in the chest uh when he believed that zeus had killed korg korg is fine korg actually went off to have a baby it's a whole thing we'll talk about it in a second um and so Zeus is really unhappy, so he calls up his son, Hercules, who has a very famous rivalry with the Odin son in the comics. Here, Hercules is being played by Brett Goldstein, who is friggin' Roy Kent from Ted Lasso. <laughs> I don't think they could have perfected this casting better if they tried. Uh, 10 out of 10. Can't wait to see more of that nonsense. Definitely thought we were going to see a lot more gods die, but... There's always time for that in the future, I guess. Um, so we're going to see Roy Kent as Hercules. And I'm just... He obviously has a, his huge rivalry with Thor. So that's no doubt what we're going to see. And Hercules in the future, you know, in, the, in modern comics, he is currently dating Marvel Boy. Um, it's a thing. It's a whole thing. They, they basically tried to retcon him as being a shitty dude by making him queer. And it didn't really work. He's still a shitty dude. Uh, but the second end credit scene, so that was the first one we get Hercules. Second end credit scene sort of picks up where the comics uh, did after Jane's death with Jane in Valhalla. Um, and she's there and she's in her nice little Asgardian robes and she is welcomed to Valhalla by Heimdall who's like, yo, you did a great job, you were a warrior, welcome to Valhalla. And after the scene it says, Thor will return. So... Are we talking about Jane or are we talking about Odin's son? A little bit ambiguous. I definitely think that they did that because they aren't sure what they're going to do with the with her in the future. If they are, the way that this end credit scene happened, the fact that it happened, uh, A, reference to the comics and her having a happy ending, and B, um, opening that door so that potentially we could do more with her in the future. 
Um, we obviously don't see Odin there in the comics. What happens is basically um, she's saved by Odin, um, who basically just says, you know, we really need you alive on Earth right now, so congratulations, you're alive again. Um, that's kind of how she's saved in Thor 706. Uh, oh, the mighty Thor 706 is the issue where that happens is. And here, instead of Odin, of course, we see Heimdall. Um, one thing I would like to add is that uh, Valhalla is not the only Norse afterlife. Um, Valhalla is Odin's afterlife. In Norse mythology, you have two afterlifes. Half of the warriors go with the god Odin to Valhalla, Half of the warriors go with the goddess Freya to Folkvanger. And I'm forever bitter that Marvel has completely ignored the existence of Folkvanger. Because Valhalla is not the Norse afterlife. It's only half the Norse afterlife. She has the other half. Why aren't we talking about it? I know that's that kind of gets into the whole, like, Anna, you were mad about Moon Knight, too. I wasn't mad about it. I was, like, kind of laughing on the floor, splitting a gut because it was so inaccurate. But... Um, I just, I would like the women to be credited, please, for also being saviors. It's not just Odin's Valhalla, it is also Freya. She is also very important here. Also, I just want to say, there is a line in this movie where they say that Zeus is the first god. That is historically inaccurate. Um, Hera was actually the first god worshipped in Greece. Or Rome. Rome. Uh, Hera. Point being, Hera is the first god, period, who had um, temples to her. So she was the first god who was worshipped pre-Zeus. That is factual. You can look it up. Okay, off of my high horse now. We're going to talk about Guns N' Roses, which clearly had a lot uh, to do with this movie. I actually have a Collider article linked in the description that has uh, talks a lot about way better than I can about the influence of Guns N' Roses on the movie. Um, I just have a couple little things that I want to talk about here. Obviously, Axel, um, whatever his original name was, Heimdall's son, takes up the name Axel because he likes Guns N' Roses, no doubt. Um, and then we have a number of their songs that play through the movie. And in an interview with Louder Sound, we had um, Taika Waititi in a statement. He said, you know, I still go home late at night instead of going on, you know, Pornhub. I'll go and watch old GNR music videos because I just love the band. But I think I'm still in love with the band back when there was the band, you know, that band, Paradise City music video, like that stuff when the hair was long and it had to and it had to have been brushed, right? So I, that was his his whole vibe about getting the music into the movie. Songs that we hear. My favorite one was November Rain, which features that beautiful guitar solo by Slash. That one played during the mighty, the, the, the battle between Thor, the mighty Thor, Gore, the children of Asgard, and uh, the symbiote beasts that Gore creates with the Necro Sword. Just... It, it was a perfect, like, almost satanic rock song to be playing right then uh, with it, to that scene. Killing it. Absolutely killing it. Um, Welcome to the Jungle played when Thor and the Guardians joined forces. Uh, they were only there for a few minutes. It's really not even worth mentioning them that much. 
Um, and it's also heard over a montage that shows them going out in battle. Paradise City is heard as we get the look at new Asgard. Sweet Child of Mine happens several times through the movie, most notably as the goats come crashing into Omnipotent City. Other songs that we hear in the movie include Enya's Only Time, which had me laughing out loud just because I listened to that album on repeat when I was a child. <laughs> uh, Mary J. Blige's Family Affair and ABBA's Our Last Summer. Uh, the score, if you're interested in the, the score side of the music, it comes from co-composers Michael Giacchino and Nami Melomad. I'm sorry for butchering their names. Finally, the last bit we want to talk about here is general interesting stuff from the movie. Um, first off, the actress who plays Lady Sif posted a picture, quote, teasing that she'd love to be in a buddy cop show with Beta Ray Bill. Now, Beta Ray Bill obviously didn't show up in this movie. We know that he exists because of Ragnarok. He had a statue there of Corbinite Beta Ray Bill. Um, and also, I believe it was Gamora in one of the Guardians movies who mentions the Corbinite race. So we know that they exist. We can definitely do Beta Ray Bill if they can make him look somewhat decent. <laughs> That's all they got to work on. Um... Does that mean that we're going to get a show with her and Beta Ray Bill? No. It does mean that she's willing to do it and that if we get enough audience interest, we might see more of Sif in the future um, on her own buddy cop style show if, if enough people want that because they seem to kind of be throwing money at the Marvel shows right now as much as they can. And I'll take it. I will take it. Um, we also have the whole story of the movie um, is comes from, uh, it's, it's Korg tells the story of Thor to a cave full of children is what the whole, how the whole thing starts. He's telling the story to those kids. It's very reminiscent of Beyond the Thunderdome. Also, speaking of Korg's species, um, they are all male apparently, and they procreate by holding hands for several weeks in a pool of lava until a new one of them develops there. So, very strange, almost asexual kind of um, reproduction. <laughs> uh, but he does end up getting his happy ending. He gets his he gets a love, and they make a baby together. I guess uh, the goats that are the screaming goats, which are friggin' hilarious, are Tooth Grinder and Tooth Tooth Nasher. Yes, those are their names from the comics. They first appear in 1976 Thor Annual number five. Although if you're talking about the actual North myth Norse mythology, classically, the two goats don't actually have names. I believe it was like the 80s or the 90s where somebody wrote a book and gave them those names based on um, what they were generally referred to as in the actual mythology. So Tooth Grinder and Tooth Nasher is the closest that you will ever get to, you know, the, the real mythological names of those goats. Now, Falagar is the god of the Falagarians. Uh, we saw him from the trailers. He was the, uh, the one who was killed covered in snow. He is the patron god of the galactic frontier who apparently wrestles black holes for or wrestled black holes for fun. We also get a very brief appearances by Dr. Darth C. Lewis and Dr. Eric Selvig, uh, which is pretty cool. Apparently both of those actors were not going to be in the movie originally, but were just pulled in kind of last minute to add those scenes, which personally I'm very relieved that they did because it would have felt like just a Thor movie, not a Jane and Thor movie, without bringing some of her characters in, her related characters. And so they did it. 
it worked out uh lady sif obviously makes her return uh when we see her she had just lost the battle with the phalagarians um against gore she survived that battle but she's wounded so if she will not go to uh the afterlife if she lets herself die there and that is enough to inspire her to go home to get better so we definitely can see more lady sif in the future should they give us a show with her um, there is that bit of a time discrepancy. Jane and Thor have different ideas of how long it's been since they've seen each other. Now, it's because Jane was among the people snapped in Infinity War, meaning that she was lost for five years before she was restored. Um, that means that when she says three or four years and he says eight, that is why that is such a difference because for her it has only been three or four years but for him it has been eight because she was snapped and he wasn't so he was there for those five years um this also suggests as one site i found points out that this movie is set in 2024 or 2025 given that the two of them broke up by the time that ragnarok happened just a little fun fact there also i have seen a number more than one, a number of articles claiming that this movie retcons the soul world that we see in Infinity Wars, you know, when Thanos sees young Gamora after he sacrifices her. Those pages don't know what they're talking about. Love and Thunder explicitly says that eternity is at the center of the universe, not the soul dimension. Just because there is water and a clear sky doesn't mean that it's the same place. Eternity is at the center of the universe. The soul dimension is the soul dimension. Completely different things. Um, I found one more fun fact, and that was that Chris, Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth's wife, Elsa Pataki, Pataki? I'm sorry, I don't know how to say her last name. <laughs> I think she's Spanish, though. Um, but he or she plays the wolf woman, who I, I honestly don't even remember seeing in the movie, who is apparently an old flame of Thor's who pops up for a brief moment in the beginning. So that's pretty fun. Finally, if Taika Waititi is going to do a fifth Thor movie or for himself third, um, he would only do that if Chris Hemsworth returns and if he could do something surprising. So that is where we land on the future of Thor movies. Obviously, we'll, we'll be, we will be seeing more of Chris Hemsworth because I highly doubt they're just gonna leave him and this new character love where they are and never refer to them again. That is That would be a little bit too much just ignoring stuff they could tie together. Um, so we'll no doubt see them in the future. Fifth, four, fifth Thor movie though, I myself would be a little bit surprised to see that. Um, I think the future of Thor might be in something that's not directly just his movie, you know? Again, uh, all in all, I give it an 8.25 to 8.75 out of 10, depending on my mood. <laughs> um, pretty good. Definitely the best Marvel movie that's come out in the past year or so. So um, definitely check it out if you liked it. I'm not going to see it again because it, movie tickets are expensive these days. Um, but I will be back next week with a new podcast episode that will be covering the Ms. Marvel finale, which is happening on the 13th of July. I will be covering the picks and polls, possibly do a little Hellfire Gala wrap-up. And if they haven't posted, I will also have October comic book solicitations. And we'll do a little bit of a pre-San Diego Comic-Con uh, podcast, what to expect coming out of San Diego Comic-Con, which is July 
21st through 24th. Thank you again for listening to whatever portion of the episode you are able to. Um, Please check out the links in the description because I keep all kinds of fun stuff down there. And keep yourself hydrated this summer as we get into warmer weather. Don't you dare start a wildfire or I will personally become your poison ivy. Um, I'm not really sure what that meant. (laughs) Have a great week. I'm excited for the Ms. Marvel finale, so let's let's touch base with that one on the next episode.